This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 62 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. In this episode of the Recorded Future podcast, we explore the unique challenges associated with securing your C-suite executives. Not only are they attractive targets for scammers and fraudsters, when it comes to security, they're often afforded a level of flexibility and deference not given to other employees. What's the most effective approach for educating executives on the critical role of security, and how do you extend that behavior beyond the office walls? In a world where business email compromise and phishing run rampant and attacks happen at the hardware DNA level, translating security strategy to the common language of risk management can be an effective approach. Joining us once again to address these questions is Dr. Christopher Pearson, CEO at Binary Sun Cyber Risk Advisors. Stay with us. When you take a look at the risks of a company, it's not just what is within the environment that matters. We do have this little bleed over of BYOD and devices that are personal devices yet have some controlled applications on them. But when we talk about the executive team and executives, you know, those 10 people, uh, 20 people that are key to the company's survival, uh, those individuals are, you know, mixing their personal and, and work lives. They're essentially working seven days a week. So working every single day of the year on phone calls, uh, working from home offices, you know, sometimes having to print out documents at home, uh, work on uh, different computers as they're traveling. And what we see there is is a pattern of behavior where they need as little friction as possible. And with that comes some of the most common things, sharing of passwords, reuse of passwords, uh, no password safes between personal life and corporate world, uh, no VPN usage. Uh, so after six days of working straight, wanting to go out for that uh, Starbucks on uh, Sunday morning and pulling over on, uh, on a VPN or on a uh, laptop on or uh, iPad over to the local Starbucks and not initiating a VPN, even on their personal device. There's just nothing these days that those executives aren't doing that isn't related in some form or fashion to work. It could be, it could be a merger and acquisition Yet they're on their personal uh, iPad, just quickly searching a few different companies, looking at some other people of the executive team that they're willing or in, and wanting to uh, uh, purchase and bring under the fold of their company. It could be any one of those things. And so those risks, those threats that exist there at the company also exist in their full personal lives and with regard to their spouse or significant other, uh, as well as the kids and everyone that's on the on the uh, home network. So. I mean, Dave, even if you take a look at uh, just recently the announcement of uh, Russian SBU compromising some 500,000 routers, when they're at home and they're behind a home router, which might be any one of the most popular brand name routers, but it has an integral uh, deficiency in it and could be compromised, you know, once again, that can impact the company. Now, how much of this uh, vulnerability is disproportional in that if the boss says, yeah, I'm not, that, that password's too hard for me, I'm just doing this, the big bad boss at the very top of the, of the chain, uh, you know, the IT people aren't going to be able to necessarily say to that person, listen, you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, so do we find that there are specific vulnerabilities that come with that, I, I guess, that deference to those types of executives? Absolutely. I mean, 
when you talk about the C-suite, when you talk about those 10 key executives, a lot of times it's a no, too much friction, don't want to be bothered with it. I just see this as an IT issue. Um, what I find there is, is that getting in with the general counsel, getting in with the chief financial officer, getting in with the head of HR, ops, getting in with folks that are actually going to uh, serve as a test case for you in terms of how you approach this, how you tackle it, and what things you offer to them that makes their lives easier is a good way of lining up different resources around that executive table so that you know one, two, three people don't want to be the odd man or woman out of the circle. I think that's that's number one. Number two, you know, showing, uh, in telling someone, hey, this password safe thing is very, very easy, or this personal VPN is very, very easy. Um, would like you to take a look at it, like you to think about it, like you to harden your browser. I mean, all that's great, but all I see is frustration, fear, anxiety, uh, and we can't do that. We have to go ahead and make sure we show them. So it could be a simple video demonstration where you literally record a it takes 20 seconds and you send them a video of it taking 20 seconds. Um, once again, we have to show, don't tell how easy it really is. And third, we have to bring things all back to the business of the company. Hmm. How does this actually help the company? I mean, sure, it might help IT, it might help security, it might help ops, but how does this actually help the company? And hitting home with some salient points there. I mean, publicly traded companies, this should be a no-brainer in terms of SEC, SEC rules, SEC disclosure laws, and all the rest. If you're operating internationally, I mean, you know, GDPR, and we could go on for hours about that. Um, but more common sense in terms of the executive team is reputational risk. You just can't be uh, operating the size of business that you are with that type of reputational risk and having it be your name or your position attached to the disclosure form regarding the risk that occurred. So I think that those are some good things to think about as we push out through the executive team. So really framing it in a way that that uh, that they can understand, speaking them speaking to them in that language of risk rather than necessarily the tech side of things. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that we actually find there is, you know, uh, uh, let's take for example shredders. You know, showing someone that uh, if they have a manual shredder as opposed to shred bins that, you know, look, you really do need those thin microcut shredders. Uh, or if you're in the defense industrial base, the NSA approved shredders, but they really do make a difference. Show them. Show, bring a Ziploc bag of some document that was, uh, you know, shredded on a cross cut versus a microcut shredder. Show it to them. Explain to them and suggest that, hey, look, we can't control you and what you do in your home. But for $99 or $200, uh, you know, getting a, one of these shredders would substantially reduce the risk of the documents you bring home. And right, we don't want you to throw them out. We want, we'd love for you to bring them back. But if you can't bring them back, shred them so that, you know, teaching someone how to improve their personal uh, safety and their personal identity theft risks also translates into the corporate world and vice versa. And so there's several things that we can do there. At the end of the day, all of these executives are extremely busy. Uh, they want to maximize time they have with their family maximize free time that they have at home. Uh, and to the extent that we can simplify things for them, I think we'll find that that benefits us a lot more. You know, you mentioned uh, at the home level of, of perhaps having um, a compromised router. How are organizations dealing with those sorts of things that are happening you know, at that firmware level, but below in the actual hardware? It strikes me that those sorts of things are hard to keep track of and, and hard to hard to trace. Yeah. You know, I think we're losing our audiences a lot here. So 
when you talk about, you know, best in class protections, best in class controls, you know, we'd rather you not do this. We'd like you to take this behavior. Those are all things, you know, kind of the, the hacking the human. Those are all the things that we want to instill in people and want them to be part of the part of the solution and be an active participant in when things like DNA level attacks occur where the end user can't do anything about it, doesn't know anything about it, doesn't know how to solve it. And quite honestly, the tech community struggles at solving it. That's where we really lose people. So, you know, for example, you know, uh, processor chips, uh, with specter and meltdown, what, what is someone supposed to do about that? You know, an Intel chip, an a chip, an AMD chip, these chipsets are in everything. Uh, ARM chips, they're in everything. What do you, you know, no one's going to go around their home and open up everything and confirm what type of chip they have or go looking for it or try to figure out how to go ahead and redo uh, the firmware of those devices. We've made it incredibly hard and difficult there for people to understand what they're supposed to do about this massive looming risk. The same thing in terms of a router. It's, well, you don't want me to just jack into the uh, the modem that the cable company brings over. You you said, uh, you know, go out and buy Acme device, and I plugged it in and set it up and did all the password things and set the SSID. I did all these things. And now you're telling me that what I just did isn't sufficient enough because there's something that's embedded within the device at a, at a native level that I can't change, can't impact, and it could have compromised my entire home. I mean – what am I supposed to do? And this is this is the frustration we see. Um, and it's quite honestly a frustration we have to solve. Uh, we have to come to the consumer population, to our executive population, with solutions to these and solutions to these attacks as opposed to, eh, we're not really sure, you know, just unplug the router and lo and behold, we find that that's not going to completely flush uh, the vulnerability from the router. So, to be clear, I mean, we need to find some way of communicating past these DNA level uh, intrinsic uh, built in vulnerabilities that are occurring. Now, how much of this do you suppose is a cultural thing where I always think of the example of medicine? You know, for example, if, if I go get my flu shot uh, every year and that's a, a good best practice, but my doctor's not going to say to me, hey, you're absolutely guaranteed to not get the flu this year, or you're not going to catch a cold or anything like that. It, it, no matter what I do, I may be decreasing the odds of getting sick, but no one is realistically going to tell me you're 100% safe. And so what I'm getting at is, is how much of this is a culture of setting expectations realistically, rather than saying to that executive, hey, we're good, there's no way anybody's going to get in here, to say, well, these are the things we can do, and, and um, this will reduce our risk this way, and you know, if you want, if we want to spend money here, we can, or we want to save money here. Do you see where I'm getting at with this? Absolutely. I mean, you know, when when you take a look at things, the how many marketing dollars that we've spent on generating fear is is crazy, right? You can't keep on crying wolf every single time because people are going to tune it out. Take a look at data breach letters. Right, only a small percentage of the population, some five to eight percent, sometimes people go up as high as ten and thirteen percent, actually do all the things that are in those letters. Yet it's blasted out every single night on the television. Data breach, data breach, data breach. Follow the letter. Do this on your credit report. Do that. Follow the link. Don't follow the link. Don't click on links. Well, now what are they supposed to do? Um, we've created this this uh, kind of uh, self-serving prophecy so that so everyone is so attenuated to cyber risks that they're fearful of doing anything. But also, in a certain regard, <laughs> you know, we're not adequately telling them what really is of a high-level risk. It's almost like what I call in the corporate world the helicopter risk. 
At any point in time, yes, the helicopter could come crashing out of the sky, could fall on you. But when we take a look at things, we need to really explain it in a way that focuses on why is this important? What is really dangerous about it? And what is the reality of what's actually going to happen as opposed to totally theoretical things that are just not likely to happen? And focus users' attention, consumers' attention on those things that actually matter. If we did that, I think we'd have a much more captive audience on those things that are truly, truly important. Yeah, and that takes me to another area I want to explore with you, which is, you know, we get these uh, these big stories about big hacks and, and uh, technical compromises and so on, but yet we're still seeing that the source of so many of these things is business email compromise and phishing. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're telling me it's a... Uh... Uh, it, it is still, you know, every single report comes out 92%, 95%, 98% phishing, human intervention, someone clicking on a link, clicking on a download, or accepting an email that, well, it might have actually come from within the internal, uh, you know, environment that could be the compromise, but more often than not, it's something that uh, is just ghosted or masked. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're actually doing it to ourselves, um, no matter what. There's no way to actually stop or prevent someone from clicking. So it does need to be some type of technological control and ramp up in controls there. Um, we do need to substantially ramp up education. As a cybersecurity community, we need to have some better offerings here that don't add you know, a ton of friction. You have sandbox after sandbox after sandbox. And once you have one and two and three second latency on things, uh, right? users are just not going to uh, you know, use that technology. And, and the same thing in terms of business email compromise, no matter what. I mean, we just had, uh, I think it was just last week, 74 people indicted in business email compromise fraud, 42 of those those folks from the United States. And IC3, which is you know an arm of the, the FBI, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, which tracks all of the self-reported uh, claims, both from different uh, uh, law enforcement offices as well as uh, from individuals, uh, you know, and so their numbers are definitely woefully underreported. But they're since they've been tracking, they've tracked about three point seven billion dollars in 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 uh, BEC fraud reported to them. Once again, woefully underreported, but it's still happening, uh, right? People are still voluntarily handing over money, voluntarily handing over the keys of the kingdom, and there really is no end in sight. I mean. The, the bad guys have actually found some things that are really working, which is why they keep on doing it. And no matter what, whether a hundred person company, thousand person company, hundred thousand person company, there's always one person that you can get to do something, make them feel rushed, make them feel pressured, make them feel special uh, that they've been chosen about the new secret program and to transfer the money now. Uh, and so we still see those things working, working within the environment. And quite honestly, until they stop working, we're not going to see adversaries changing their attack uh, vector and how they go about this. Yeah, let, let's uh, let's bring it back home to uh, threat intelligence and, and how that all sort of ties this together. Where do we find ourselves today in terms of companies dialing it in and really prioritizing threat intelligence and, and making it useful? You know, threat intelligence is not just about the tools, whether they be automated tools, manual tools, open source intelligence, paid for intelligence. I mean, there's that aspect of things. Then there's the aspect of having some way of dimensioning, analyzing, assessing those risks. You know, how is this relevant to my sector, to my products and services, to my machines or my environment, and to our people? 
who are actually here at the company based off of not just who they are, but the culture around the company. So there's always those elements to intelligence, but really making it a priority so that you can actually transfer this into more of a strategic, I think is really where we need to be heading. So many companies don't have a threat intelligence program whatsoever. And for them, they should start out with that in terms of a part-time add-on, moving to a full-time FTE, uh, and actually making it work within their security operations center or uh, DevSecOps uh, centers, uh, whatever they might have. Once again, that's very manual and very tactical uh, based off of the sector, product services, machines, environment, all the rest. What applies to me? How does it apply? And how do I move about making some things automated and hand- handling others in a more manual fashion? That's great. My bigger question is this. When we see the trends, and oftentimes it's, as, as you know, oftentimes it's the third-party companies that analyze six months' worth of data and then come out with a uh, cybersecurity report saying, here are the last trends that we saw over the past six months or past year, and they're providing a strategic vision on where things need to move from a control perspective. I think it's actually right about time that we really shift. It's gotten much more of a matured process here, but we shift the internal cybersecurity intelligence teams, analysts, into actually feeding out strategic information, strategic data back to the CIO, back to the CISO, even to the CFO as to what we're seeing, why we're seeing it, and how it impacts us. Once again, not on a tactical level, but at a strategic level so the company can actually say, huh, we're seeing our sector threats increase here. Our control set there is a little less than in other areas. We need to make some funding changes, some funding differences, maybe less controls in other areas and ramp up controls in this area. I would like to see the threat intelligence world uh, and the analyst world plug in more into the strategic direction of the company every three to six months in terms of controls, product services, and ways of actually tackling those items, and especially education, quite honestly. Do you think we're headed in that direction? Or are, people, are people hearing that message? I think there's a disparity here. So there's definitely folks that are at larger companies that have, you know, entire security, cybersecurity intelligence teams where they have lots of individuals that are actually tackling this and feeding up high-level recommendations into some type of risk management governing board, a CISO committee uh, for more strategic-based items. But everyone can do this, and it's actually at the smaller company company level where they can benefit more from this. And, And what I mean by it is this, is that, If in your sector, if based off the threats you see, if based off of those different risks you see coming through, whether it's paid or free intel, doesn't matter, you're able to make better purchasing decisions on controls, better purchasing decisions on people, better education decisions, you're going to greatly mitigate those risks uh, that are coming into your company and that your company will be seeing in the future than if you just stay on the status quo. I think it's gonna save money long-term for the smaller companies Um, But once again, it has to be assimilated into a strategic perspective. That's Dr. Christopher Pearson from Binary Sun Cyber Risk Advisors. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. 
The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.